first, I have a quick announcement. We have a few live events coming up that you do not want to miss. First up, Helen Zaltzman of The Illusionist and I have this brand new live stage show that we're calling 99% Illusional, Objects and Words for Beautiful Nerds. We're performing it on Friday, April 14th at Zipper Hall in Los Angeles. It's a benefit show. All proceeds are going to Arts for LA, an organization I love and support. I really hope you guys come out. It's totally new for us and super exciting. We'll have a link on the website and in the episode description of this podcast. Plus, I'm in a completely different live West Coast tour with the Radiotopia group from May 8th through the 12th. 99PI will be performing a live story song with John Moellum and members of the Decemberists. If you remember, they did the Wild Ones episode for us and it remains one of the best things we've ever broadcast. Avery Truffleman is in it too. It's really special and I'm super proud to be a part of it, but it is meant to be heard live. If you can make it to Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, or LA, you must make the trip. There's going to be a lot of coin checking going on. So you lucky dogs in LA, you get to see me twice, but in completely different contexts, and you should go to both. Links to full details are in the episode description or on our website, 99pi.org. This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. Logos used to be a thing that people really didn't give much thought to. Over the last decade, the volume and intensity of arguments about logos have increased substantially. A lot of this is just the internet being, you know, the internet. But logo redesigns in particular attract a lot of hyperbolic vitriol. I was wondering what this felt like to a designer, so I talked to one of my favorites. Michael Beirut is an AIGA medalist and partner at the international design consultancy Pentagram, where his work includes brand identity, logos, book design, and packaging. I had such a fun time talking with him, I just thought I'd put our conversation out as its own episode. I hope you dig it. Many of you might be familiar with the logos we discuss, but if you need a little help jogging your memory, this is a great episode to listen to as you scroll through the images on this episode's webpage at 99pi.org. Michael says that for a very long time, no one understood what his job as a graphic designer really meant. But recently, that's changed. I have to admit, now a lot of times people will say, oh, so do you do logos? Or they'll outright ask me what I think of a, you know, some logo that's in the news. And this is entirely new and kind of startling <laughs> and unnerving. <laughs> what is the most recent logo they've asked you about? Oh, have you even I mean, asked about your own logo? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I was... Uh, like as if they didn't know? Oh, no. Oh, absolutely. I was um, back in uh, early 2015. I was engaged in a secret project, which was to design a logo for the campaign of, as of yet, undeclared candidate for president Hillary Clinton. And... Um, it launched, there was a huge amount of attention to this logo, which, you know, became ubiquitous, I think, the H with the arrow in it. And at one point, before it was widely known that I was a designer of it, I got an email from a magazine saying that they were convening a bunch of designers to volunteer to say how they would have designed the logo because it was so horrible. And so, like, <laughs> we'd like to know, how, how would you have designed it if you could have done anything? And I sort of, you know, I just said, oh, you know. I think I'll pass this time. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a bit more how the Hillary logo came about. It used to be that people would run for political office and they didn't understand that they needed a logo and maybe they didn't need a logo. Um, Barack Obama changed all that in 2008. He ran and uh, he had this now famous O for Obama in blue with sort of uh, red 
stripes leading into the center of the O with the O kind of symbolizing a setting or probably more likely a rising sun. And that symbol was so ubiquitous both in 2008, the fact that he won kind of uh, sealed the deal. It appeared over the next uh, eight years representing his candidacy and will go on to uh, brand, I assume, his foundation and his library and his post-presidential activities. With that kind of established as a benchmark for political campaigns, By the time 2016 rolled around, every candidate, one way or another, had to unveil a logo. And very early on in 2015, the beginning of the year, I got a call from a team that was consulting with Hillary Clinton. They asked me whether I would volunteer my services to create a logo for Secretary Clinton. And what we wanted to do was exploit some of the characteristics that people had come to appreciate, I think possibly by accident, about the Obama logo, one of which was that um, it could be adapted into different forms. You could you could kind of like customize it for different groups of voters or different locations. And so we had this idea, like, what if we had a symbol that you could change every day if you wanted? You could make it celebrate LGBT rights one day and celebrate veterans the next day and then modify it for uh, Memorial Day the day after that or Halloween the day after that. That required something very simple. So we came up with this very simple H with an arrow going through it, kind of symbolizing we thought that the candidate was moving the country forward and also giving us a way to kind of point that H at other things, meaning that Hillary was for or veterans, or for LGBT rights, or for me. And it just kind of like proved to be a, uh, a really interesting, malleable, lively system in the end. You know, it's interesting because it's uh, this sort of device, you know, for one thing, no one really votes. People don't vote for logos. They vote for candidates, <laughs> and, they vo- and they vote for people who they think will improve their lives in some actual way, not uh, people that have flashy logos. But, you know, often um, it's some... Um, tangible symbol will crystallize in the voting public's mind, you know, the essence of what a candidate is. And I think just as, um, you know, Hillary perhaps had that uh, H with an arrow in it, and by the time it was election day, you know, I was seeing it everywhere. And certainly, you know, at the convention center, Javits Convention Center that night for the what was meant to be the victory party, you know, people had it embroidered on their jackets, you know, temporary tattoos on their faces. It was everywhere. It was interesting. You know, at the same time, um, her uh, opponent had a red hat with with the slogan on the front of it, you know, and that in a way was a logo for that candidacy. So I think there's the substance of what people are promising. And there's sort of the a tangible bit of shorthand that kind of sums up what that promise is. And I think that um, in the commercial world, that's what symbols have always done. You know, you're meant to kind of ascribe all sorts of higher transcendent values to things like uh, basketball sneakers and soda and soda pops, you know, and instead the the transcendent values are then athletic achievement and refreshment, respectively. And somehow devices like swishes or uh, dynamic ribbons or whatever you want to say are kind of meant to be the holders of that meaning that is then kind of reinforced by advertising and by hopefully actual firsthand experience with the product. It's interesting. I never really thought of the hat being a logo. Could you sort of pull apart some of its qualities as to what it's conveying to you and why it works? I think what was interesting about Donald Trump's red Make America Great hat was that, one, it's very it's very populist sort of thing. It's clearly not something one associates with coastal elites, you know, who are intellectuals, although I know 
I, hey, I have baseball caps and wear baseball caps. So, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and so maybe I'm not an elite. I'm from Ohio after all. But I mean, it, it's sort of a, uh, um, it's definitely not suited for a, a black tie or a business attire. It's meant to be sort of a, the kind of thing you associate maybe with, um, you know, with hardworking salt of the earth Americans. The fact that it's red is sort of making a really clear statement about, um, you know, red America, let's say. And the slogan, make America great again. All caps, you know, cap-locked, yelling, aptly, I think, kind of reminded people of the candidate's own delivery of those words. And I think most importantly, it, you know, it wasn't an underground thing. It was very visible. If you sort of were a supporter, you put that thing right on your head, you know, and it was like if someone was looking at your face, they would look at that hat and they'd read those words, you know. Wearable brands like that, short of tattoos, are sort of the, you know, big commitment you make to kind of advertising someone else's cause. And so I assume that he had buttons and stickers and signs and stuff like that. But that hat, which was meant to be worn, was like really calling on people to personally identify with that candidate in a really unequivocal way. So the Hillary H with an arrow logo is released and people react to it the way they react to any logo right now, which is really active discussion online whenever a new one is done. Yeah. And it's also in the context of this political campaign where she got an unbelievable amount of criticism no matter what she did. Yeah, yeah. But I remember people reacting to the H with the arrow really strongly, some of it quite negative. Were you prepared for that in any way? What had taken me aback and what I should have seen coming is that logo, which I actually personally thought was and still think was really good. I mean, uh, it was exactly the one that we wanted the campaign to use. We were confident that over the course of the campaign, it would be used in all sorts of ways that would win people over. And I think that was largely proven out. I mean, I think by the time November came around, if you sort of like went on the uh, Pantsuit Nation Facebook page, you would see a million different expressions of it, all homegrown and grassroots and really, really fun. And I remember saying while we were working, while we were looking at all the different options of the logo, I remember saying, you know, I want something that's so simple that a first grader could do it with construction paper, Elmer's glue, and kindergarten scissors. You know, I didn't want a fancy thing. You needed to know software programs to create. I wanted something that was as easy to draw as a heart or a peace sign or a smiley face, you know, something that could be that ubiquitous. And I think we got pretty close to it. It's just a very simple piece of geometry and two primary colors. Now, um, really, though, what happens when something like that is launched, put out there into you know, the uncaring world, people <laughs> treat it as a, it's open-endedness actually at that moment works against it. It's treated as a Rorschach blot and everyone projects things onto it, right? And uh, this happens with sports teams. It happens with colleges and universities. But I think I underestimated to the degree to which it would happen with a political candidate where someone as well-known as uh, uh, Secretary Clinton, you know, has have, there's a lot of people who have opinions about her already, and then suddenly they have this convenient thing upon which to project opinions they may have already had or opinions that they just thought were clever or whatever it was. And so suddenly, uh, you know, what I, I kind of would marvel sometimes. I would say it's just some straight lines, <laughs> some 90-degree angles, some 45-degree angles, and two primary colors. It doesn't mean, you know, it's, it's you know, and people would say, well, what does it mean? I said, well, it's an H. Because it's that's the, the candidate's name because of age. It's an arrow because she wants to move the country forward, and it's red, white, and blue because of America. 
And you know, that's really the truth. That's what it meant. And yet, um, uh, you know, I was I was kind of taken aback, but I shouldn't have been actually. And I have to commend the uh, campaign who were resolute about their uh, uh, commitment to it and, in fact, really brought it to life and made it really sing over the subsequent months. You know, uh, in contrast, there was a notorious uh, logo that uh, was unveiled when uh, Donald Trump identified his running mate in the form of Governor Pence, and they had this TP ligature that a lot of people thought they saw, you know, unsavory things in and made fun of it and animated it in, uh, in ways that are kind of salacious. And it was like, it, it just was made to disappear and uh, kind of blink it. You know, if you unveil a logo and you really are committed to it, the worst thing you can do is sort of blink and sort of say, oops, forget that. We're, we're making that go away and forget you ever saw that. I think if you, if you stick to it and just act like you really mean it, eventually the world will get used to it. And then eventually, if you wait long enough, people will be outraged if you try to redesign it into something else. <laughs> do you remember the first time there was a public fight? about a logo where normal people like got involved so for years kind of like logo redesigns was like a very esoteric thing where people like me who had gone to art school to learn to be graphic designers would sort of say did you see they changed the ups logo you know the logo for ups delivery trucks and i know who designed the original logo i know who did the redesign i know what kind of things to say about it and everyone sort of like would talk about it so there were like little you know chat rooms on websites where people would comment for days on the pros and cons of things like that the first one i remember going public was the gap floated a redesign of its logo it appeared online and suddenly someone said, oh, my God, The Gap, the you know, the retail store, The Gap is going to redesign its logo. And to the surprise of The Gap, you know, all these consumers started getting like really agitated about it and started saying, you know, save the old Gap logo, you know, or this new logo is ridiculous. It looks, you know, you know, usually the criticism that's lodged against new logos is that my four-year-old could have designed that new logo. Now, as you, you know, I actually think that's a good thing. I like logos that four-year-olds can design, actually. Um, but um, to most people, they sort of seem like logos are sophisticated things that need to be designed with complicated equipment by um, skillful people. And they also assume that a lot of money was spent on logos, too. So how much was someone paid to do this thing? You know. So I remember that The Gap had sort of let this logo float around out there that was uh, not the blue box with the highly condensed serif letters GAP that we're all familiar with, but it was a lowercase Helvetica with this superimposed faded blue square kind of put off center on the letters. And for some reason, it just really aggravated people. I, even I was surprised by that. And people asked me my opinion of it. And I, I don't remember a normal person ever asking my opinion about a logo before. But that became, <laughs> that, that was something that started happening more and more in, this, in the years to follow. So uh, something about social media, something about the internet kind of has enabled all this to happen. And they definitely blinked on that one. Right. Oh, yeah, I mean, they, they sort of, you know, I think they denied they ever meant it. You know, oh, that was just something we were experimenting with. Don't worry, we've heard our loyal customers loud and clear and uh, never fear we shan't be changing the Gap logo. And it, what's interesting is, of course, you know, that's a logo doing exactly what it's supposed to do. I mean, when people are being sold logos, they're told that they will be the receptacle of all the passion that the consumers have for a brand, which is this kind of weird 
hard to express thing otherwise, but now all of a sudden this will be the focal object upon which all that love is going to be aimed. And naturally then the the customers think that they own the logo, you know, and then when the, mm-hmm. when the company like, uh, you know, has the temerity to change it without asking anyone's permission, suddenly the customers who have been told this is, you know, love this thing, all of a sudden it's changed on them and without warning and they get like freaked out. Do you think that general design awareness in the public has made your job easier or harder? Oh, I think it's it's made it easier and it's made it more fun, I would say. I've always thought that what I do, what I do isn't the most important thing in the world, uh, but I always thought it was important. I've devoted my life to it and it's gratifying to have people notice it. And I don't think we can ask people to notice our work and think it's worth talking about and then presume to tell people but you can only say positive things about it. You know, I think you, I mean, if it's, if people are going to talk about it, you'll get uninformed people talking about it, you get informed people talking about it. And by and large, people, like, I think negative comments are always more fun to read than positive ones. A rave <laughs> review is a little dull to read, but I mean, I've never had anyone forward me a, a positive restaurant review. You know, like, on the other mm-hmm. hand, if, if the restaurant review of the New York Times takes a restaurant apart, you know, the relish with which uh, that writer will describe every dish is just a sight to be behold. And, uh, and I think, you know, so, so, so I think, you know, it's criticism is much more fun to write and more fun to read. And unless we want to go back to having no one notice what we're doing and pretending like it doesn't matter at all, we should just get used to criticism. And I, I have, that's for sure. I mean, is there a way to get used to criticism? Like, have you figured out uh, what's your sort of jujitsu method of dealing with it? One of my partners and I, Michael Garricky and I, redesigned the logo for the Big Ten football conference. And it needed to be redesigned because it was called the Big Ten, but it had 11 teams in it. And they had this clever logo that combined the words Big Ten written out with the number 11 kind of hiding by the T for 10. So it was sort of like you you would simultaneously read 10 and 11 while looking at it, which I just thought was you know, it's a neat solution to a problem which actually shouldn't be focused on. You know, I mean, let's not celebrate this weird uh, disconnect between the, the name of the conference and the number of actual teams that are in it. And they were going to 12 teams and not even more teams. So the whole thing was they decided to kind of like just come up with a logo that wasn't based on uh, the actual number of teams in the conference, which just was called the Big Ten Conference. So we did basically a logo that was uh, made out of the letters B-I-G for big. And then we did a treatment of the I and big and the G and big. So it had a double reading as the number 10. And so when that was unveiled, I actually got voicemail about it from people saying, you know, I can't believe you. You know, what's wrong with you people? Like, those people are the loyal fans. And I remember someone at uh, the Big Ten Conference, when this logo launched, sort of telling me, you know, this is the – you know, this is the passion that kind of makes them sit in those seats when the weather is terrible. And, you know, and the same passion is going to make them take it personally when you fiddle with the logo. But what happens is once people get over the shock, if you can hold on tight, they'll get used to the new logo. And if it's any good at all, it'll soon be the beloved Big Ten logo, and people will sort of like then object the next time it's changed. As long as people still care about the Big Ten, they'll care about it every time it's changed. And I have to admit, we're entering a stage now where I have worked with clients on doing logos and doing updates to logos where I can tell the worst thing that could happen is if no one reacted at all. Um, Mm -hmm. The best thing would be if everyone loved it, but the 
the worst thing would be if no one noticed. They're like happy to sort of like take the outrage just because, wow, people really care about us. It's easy for people to care about a sports team or a university. It's a little bit harder to make people care about a retail brand, but people do, do feel very faithful to retail stores because they put those garments right on their bodies. And I think it's actually a little bit harder to make people care about financial institutions and more abstract entities that play a, a more kind of distant role in our lives. But um, all of them now um, will get comments on logo updates. And I think the jujitsu that you use to sort of weather it is you just sort of think, well, people are going to react to change strongly sometimes, but the strength of that reaction is actually directly related to the depth of feeling they have about the particular brand that you're representing. So it's a little bit bad news equaling good news, I think. Have you ever had a one-on-one interaction with a person like a, a Buckeye fan just deeply enraged? And, and how did it go? <laughs> well, this is what's interesting. With those Buckeye fans, for instance, I had this policy of responding. We, we They found out, somehow it came out that we had done it and people found our emails and I started getting forward these emails that had a lot of, uh, <laughs> how dare you, or I don't care how much you charge, or you should be ashamed of yourself, or you know, my father who was class of 23 is spinning in his grave, or you know, whatever. I mean, <laughs> sort of, you know... I, and, and I would always write back in this really kind of courteous way saying, one, it's always disappointing to have worked hard on something to know that people don't like it. I can only hope that you, over time, come to at least get used to it, ideally come to like it as much as we do, or at the very least not have it bother you quite as much. But I know that the team values the strong feelings you have about them. And as a fellow fan, that's the thing that we all really focus on. I would write something like that. And and I really meant it too. I really meant every element of that. And then about two thirds of the people I would write to would write me back in this chastened sort of tone where they say, oh, oh, thanks. I'm sorry. I, I, I was going over the top a little bit. I still don't like it, but I, I was happy to hear your explanation. And uh, I'm sorry I kind of like fired that off to you in the heat of the moment. Sometimes I wouldn't apologize. But clearly, the one thing that was, that was really obvious was that the thing that really bothered them the most was their sense that giant, impersonal corporate forces were – arbitrarily changing things that they cared about personally with no thought of who they were, you know, as fans and what the team right. was or anything like that. And the idea that there was a human being with a name and a voice who might share their feelings in any way whatsoever, you could tell it wasn't what they were picturing. You know, it, it, it's a very satisfying target if you just think somewhere up there, you know, horrible people are messing with something that I liked and now it's ruined. <laughs> I hate you, you know. And then if, if, if all of a sudden that person shows up in person, it's a little bit kind of, oh, I, oh, I, I didn't quite mean that. So, um, so I, and again, and again, my goal, I'm not trying to convert these people. I'm just like, I, re, I mean, I sincerely feel bad. When I design something, I actually am not trying to make people mad. I want people to like the thing I design. And I'm sort of almost mm. always convinced at the moment that eventually, if the thing I've designed is well-crafted and is really appropriate for its purpose, fits the team, fits the audience, eventually will come to you know, play the same role in their lives that the thing did that it replaced. And and mm-hmm. logos are interesting because I design a lot of things. I design, say, book covers, let's say. And a book mm-hmm. cover, it has one moment of truth. When you're buying a book in a bookstore, you walk down the aisle and it, it catches your eye. And then you think, oh, this looks interesting. You pick it up and you decide to buy it. Then your experience thereafter is basically with the book itself and the role that the cover played isn't 
that consequential. Logos, though, they're one of the few things that appreciate and value as they're used. If you picture, you know, really simple logos that are iconic in the American commercial landscape now, like the Target logo, say, or the Nike swoosh, these are things that, you know, a four-year-old could design, are really simple-looking, have no inherent meaning. Well, the Target logo has, you know, a meaning that, that people find exasperating. You know, if, you, if you're hiring some fancy design firm to do a logo for a company called Target and they come back and they say, we came up with something really great, here it is, and it's a Target. It's like, <laughs> how long did that take, you know? But, I mean, think about, think about how much they've been able to do with the simplicity of that mark. Think about how they've been able to manipulate very simple forms to mean all sorts of different things. And I would argue that that logo now, regardless if they paid for it back in the 60s when it was commissioned, it's worth, you know, 100 times as much now. What is your least favorite aspect of the heated discussion around logos or redesigns when they happen publicly? Um... Like, what's the type of criticism where you just, like, go, uh, that's not, I don't <laughs> oh, care for Well, that. you know, um, if you design something new, people, for some reason, are so desperate to reconcile it with something they're already familiar with that they'll say, oh, that looks exactly like this other thing. And sometimes, mm-hmm. depending on their frame of mind, they'll say, that looks exactly like this other thing that could be something vaguely smutty, like, you know— uh, male or female anatomy or something like that. There's like so much of that goes around. And no matter what you design, you know, they have this very human need to kind of turn abstract shapes into something figurative that means something. And really, I mean, what logos are meant to be are empty vessels into which meaning is poured. And that meaning, when they work right, is the meaning that your firsthand experience with the thing that's represented by the logo is. And I think uh, when someone just says, oh, that looks like uh, that looks like genitalia to me, did you see it? You know, this sort of is tough. Also, I've never actually committed this error all the way, but if you're a practicing graphic designer, if you're a young graphic designer out there, I'll, one bit of advice I have is if you're like working on a logo that is like a, say it's a quasi, you know, it's a geometric logo with a, with, with a four-part kind of thing that kind of has a, uh, a rotational, angular rotational aspect. If someone says, that kind of reminds me of a swastika. Um, you, you will that, but just, uh, you know, that's a signal you should s- that that logo will not be presented to anyone. Just put it away. Actually, that sort of is like as close to. I mean, you can say it looks like a penis, and like you can actually get over that. But I mean, logos that look like swastikas just like really. I remember uh, I was going to a meeting with a uh, you know uh, to a client, and I had privately had a little twinge with. I, I did a logo I really liked, and it sort of had these kind of geometric characteristics. That depending on how you looked at it, you know, you know, but no, not really. <laughs> and then, so I was going there, with, and, and I had this big presentation. I needed like an, I needed someone to help me just carry the thing to the meeting, and not even be in the meeting, just carry me in there. It was like an intern, and the intern said. This one sort of looked like a swastika to you. And I remember like almost like bursting into tears and saying, now you've ruined everything. And sure enough, I go in the meeting. I said, this one, you know, the client says, well, this one won't work. You know, you you see what it looks like, right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. What was I thinking? So I guess I hate that the most. If someone says it it looks like an emblem of the most evil political and cultural force of the 20th century, that's not good. And, uh, (laughs) you know, and it just goes to show you, though, that was, you know, the swastika was this perfectly abstract, harmless, and even kind of benevolent symbol for centuries. It was a spiritual insignia that 
kind of has a lot of uh, application in Eastern culture and then got hijacked by uh, one guy, a failed artist and his friends, and they turned it into what they turned it into. And it just goes to show you. I mean, if somebody notices it, that's a good piece of criticism because obviously- Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, right. I mean, you you do want to I mean, you do when you're doing these things, you do want to say, um, you know- what does this look like? What does this remind you of? And then these days, particularly, abstract logo designers have the same problem that people coming up with names for products do, or, you know, where it's, mm-hmm. um, you know, where all the good names are taken, all the good URLs are taken, and frequently all the good kind of simple, abstract, geometric logos are taken. So it's really hard to find one that hasn't been done already. When you do these things, you have to do these, you know, you do these legal searches, you try to make sure that no one else has used it. If you can find one that's nice and simple that is available, you're just kind of like, oh my, you feel like you've discovered a new continent. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Want to plant your flag on it and declare yourself king. (laughs) Have you ever seen a new logo or a redesigned logo and over time had the most change of heart about it, like a real strong reaction and then kind of began to love it? Or do you do you remember anything like that where your point of view changed either for the more positive or for the more negative? Partly because of the way I've been trained and having done this for so many years, my snap judgment about logos is probably more refined than it should be. So there are ones that I saw when they were brand new that I didn't like much then and I still don't like. But a lot of times, even if I don't like it, I sort of get what they were going for. There's some that are just outright. I just plain don't like them. Here in New York, we had a uh, the longstanding logo of the Metropolitan Museum of Art was replaced with a logo that replaced a a drawing of an M with the letters with letters saying the Met. And a lot of people didn't like it, partly because it was new and it was replacing something that they were used to. And partly because I I would concede it was like really really idiosyncratic and weird looking. But at the same time I was thinking, you know, but if you go to the Met, you know, it's a big, complicated, idiosyncratic place. You go there to get lost. It's like really labyrinthine inside. It has so much stuff there. To try to represent this thing with something that could look like it was for a pharmaceutical company, something clean and simple, wouldn't be doing it justice. It needs something that kind of feels complicated and idiosyncratic and specific. So I remember I looked at it and I see, even now when I see it, it still kind of takes me aback sometimes because I was used to the old one like everyone else was. But I can recognize that in the long run, I think it will. If they stick with it, I think it'll work and come to be as beloved as its predecessor was. When you say that you plain don't like something, just like in general, what are those things that you plain don't like? Is, is there a way you could articulate those qualities? I mean, I hate to say it, but just like everyone else, I'll look at something and say, oh my goodness, that's rather ugly, isn't it? You know, and like, you know, I mean, some, like, I mean, for instance, if you want to talk about another, another design, uh, the uh, design for the um, 2012 Olympics right. in London were widely criticized. And I think right I don't know. Well, to the degree that it's right to criticize logos, I can really see why people criticize it because I think the, that was like a, a, a darned funny looking logo because <laughs> uh, it was like really chunky and jaggedy and kind of kooky looking. And but again, I have to admit, I sort of got it. It's like you know, like a presidential campaign logo. It's sort of only it, it had to mark a moment in time. It wasn't being designed to be this enduring thing that would last forever. It just had to kind of like symbolize what was happening in a specific place at a specific time and would be further associated 
associated with all these kind of feats of athleticism that would be the actual real experience of the uh, event, not just the logo. And so in a way, something idiosyncratic and specific could come to stand for all those other things. However, I still think it's ugly. It's just it's just like ugly. It's sort of ungainly. It's like weird looking. I could And I could never quite – I have to admit, I, I personally and privately need to make up a story that explains it. Hence, right. I could make up a lot of stories for the Met logo. I could make up a lot of stories for every logo I've ever designed. To me, it's sort of the same pleasure I used to take as a kid – you know, sitting in my dentist's office looking at Highlights magazine, they have that thing called Hidden Pictures where it's oh, just this drawing. Those are the best. Of, yeah, it's the best, right? <laughs> it's this drawing, and then it says in the in the picture above, can you find you know a teapot? a hairbrush, you know, a basketball. And then and then you can't see any of those things. Then you see, oh my God, like the hairbrush is the drapes on that window and the basketball is that plate that's in the pantry. You know, and then all of a sudden you're finding all these things and there's such pleasure in discovering those things. And if you've got a logo that has that bit of pleasure embedded in it, and I think with like, for instance, when we embedded the 10 in the I and the G in the Big, in the big 10 logo, we were trying to do something like that. The most famous instance of it, probably with contemporary logos is the arrow that's hidden in the FedEx logo. Um, you know, but I think, you know, th- those little surprises just give people, uh, you know, so much, you know, to give them a little bit of joy, make them feel smart and actually make them complete the picture in their own mind. And you have the pleasure of looking at something and making a discovery. And I think if you can associate that moment of pleasure with a uh, logo, that really is a great thing. Even if you look at a logo and say, well, all those ligatures are meant to symbolize connection. That's not quite as fun as finding a, uh, a hairbrush in, uh, in some window curtains, but it's, uh, it's something and it works for me these many years later. <laughs> So last year, there was a redesign of the Kodak logo, and I interviewed Kira Alexandra of Work Order, who did it. And when I talked to her, she purposely talked about how they just rolled it out kind of low-key, and they yep. didn't make a big hullabaloo about it. Um, I mean, it still got criticized in different ways and, and largely lauded. But, you know, it was kind of a reaction to the brand-new Thumbs up, thumbs down. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, you know, what do you think of that? Is that a good idea? Do you, do you also, do you feel similarly inclined or do you like to throw it out there and have it be a, a bit of a blood sport? You know, like what what is what is your take on that? Well, I used to tell my clients, no one will care when your logo goes out there. Don't take out an ad in the paper and say, bold new look, same great taste, you know, which, you know, like no one cares, you know. I, I used to like joke and say, oh, honey, honey, kids come in, uh, you know, amalgamated widget just changed their logo. You know, no one cares. But um, then we passed through this th- weird thing where it became this funny kind of like social media enabled blood sport where like, you know, you know, amalgamated widget is going to change its logo in three, two, one, game on, you know. And it's like, you know, my four-year-old could do that. How much they pay for this piece of crap, et cetera. You know, so suddenly it turned into this, like, thing that people did for the, their own and others' amusement. I, I still think, though, that these things succeed to the degree that they're actually reflecting something of substance that's really changed in the thing that's represented by the logo. So in the case of Kodak, when they updated that logo, it was meant to – mark the rebirth of a beloved American company that to certain generations of photographers really was the, you know, the 
the, the gold standard of, uh, or, or just the, the ubiquitous kind of element in the photographic process. And it was associated with that five-letter word Kodak, especially with the yellow box and with that very simple logo that they had. And when, um, you know, Kira Alexander and her team updated it, they actually were really careful, I thought, and sensitive to extrapolating everything they were doing from examples in the past. And I know what pleasure she took. She did one big, bold move, which was uh, instead of writing Kodak horizontally, she writes it vertically. She stacks the five letters one atop each other and is able to make a very neat kind of ready for the 21st century and all the requirements that logos have to have today in terms of reproduction and uh, dissemination. She made a really nice logo with that move and took a great deal of pleasure in finding a couple of examples of of the letters being stacked in the same way from deep in the past of the company. So she was able to kind of give the whole thing this imprimatur, this endorsement from uh, almost beyond the grave, from the deep in the history of the company, which I think was really satisfying and actually very effective for them. Is there like a fashion right now that you bristle against or or maybe one that you think is great i mean like simple for example is like yeah i don't think that's i think that's kind of always been somewhat of a goal in logos but it seems to take on a, a real guiding principle right now maybe more than in the time when somebody wrote a coca-cola out as a long script is there something you know today that you really love that you think is a, is a fundamental principle or do you think of it as a fashion or you know anything like that I have to admit, I like simplicity of form, but I kind of sometimes I'm a little suspicious of simplicity and typography. You know, so I love this typeface called Helvetica, which some people would argue is among you know it's a very simple, clean, and ubiquitous typeface that uh, um, you know that has represented over the years everything from American Apparel to American Airlines. You know, chances are no matter where you are, uh, you, there's some Helvetica on something that you can see from where you're sitting. And if not, just take out your wallet. And if you have any American paper currency, that big number five on your $5 bill is in Helvetica. So there it is, right? Um, and I think um, there was a time back in the late 60s where you could take any logo, reset it in Helvetica, and it would look modern, contemporary, and kind of like ready for, you know, the millennium. Uh, and I think then it fell out of favor. And I think oddly it's come back a little bit. So uh, among other things, um, you know, very recently Diane von Furstenberg has been redesigned. So instead of uh, um, the idiosyncratic DV, uh, uh, DVF monogram uh, that they had before. And now it's the words Diane von Furstenberg in Helvetica. And it looks clean. It looks neutral, looks smart, but it also kind of at its worst, you know, and not, not necessarily in this case, but I mean, sort of has that same sort of glum and impassive and kind of, um, I am really, I'm too cool even to acknowledge you exist kind of face that supermodels will have in certain fashion shoots where they just are expressionless and kind of almost zombie-like, you know? I am so cool. Don't look at me. No, please look at me. Not like that. I, I don't know who you are. Go away, you know? And so the Helvetica kind of can have that quality. And I just think it's sort of a, it can be a mean withholding sort of typeface. So I have a bunch of listeners. They're, you know, design aware. They're design engaged. And as a person who, you know, puts things out in the world, world and and makes logos and makes new um, logo systems for people what would you want them to know when they interact with you like what what type of criticism would you like to hear or not like to hear 
I sort of deal in a field where like almost like a lot of the things that define uh, what I do kind of comes down to really boring sort of um, sayings like don't judge a book by its cover or on the other hand, you only get one chance to make a first impression. And so they all kind of contradict each other, you know, Um, and, you know, the advice I give is that um, at the end of the day, graphic design is really important but it's also kind of one of the most cosmetic things in the world. You know, if you can mm-hmm. read an exit sign, you're going to get out the door. You know, if the door doesn't have a doorknob on it, if it's nailed closed, you know, these are all things that are real impediments. But that exit sign can be in any typeface you want and you're still going to find the door. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think it's, um, you know, you can make an, a handsome exit sign that actually fits the architecture around it. You can make one that's hard to read and that one is going to be uh, dysfunctional. But there's a lot of different ways to do it and usually it's not a life or death thing. I think there's a lot of things that are like really life and death matters in the world and really important and worth getting agitated about. I think that probably logo design shouldn't be one of them. There's people that are paid a lot of money to to care desperately about the way logos look, and I aspire to be one of those people. I think that uh, um, <laughs> if you're not getting paid to do it, like try not to do it too much. Only do it to the degree it entertains you, but then move on to more important things. Michael Beirut is a partner at Pentagram. I'm the proud owner of a signed copy of his book, How to Use Graphic Design to Sell Things, Explain Things, Make Things Look Better, Make People Laugh, Make People Cry, and every once in a while, Change the World. Plus, he's the co-host, along with Jessica Helfand, of the podcast, The Design of Business, The Business of Design. It's really good. If you're looking for insights into the world of design and designers, you need to subscribe to it and its sister podcast, Debbie Millman's Design Matters, which is like the OG of design podcasts. They're essential listening. So I have to do the credits and some very important announcements first, but we have a special bonus interview at the end of the episode, which is a clip of a live event I did with my friend Kevin Smokler about the places both real and imagined from your favorite 80s movies. Kevin's new book is called Brat Pack America. It's super fun, especially for anyone who grew up on those movies where places like Shermer, Illinois, Hill Valley, the Goondocks, Sherwood, Ohio, were characters in and of themselves. So stay tuned for that. 99% Invisible is Emmett Fitzgerald, Delaney Hall, Kurt Kolstad, Taryn Mazza, Katie Mingle, Sean Rial, Avery Truffleman, Sharif Youssef, and me, Roman Mars. Astute listeners from over the years might notice a name missing from that list. Sam Greenspan. Sam started out on the show as a remote intern based in Baltimore when it was just me in my apartment in Richmond, California. He was the very first person I hired for the show. Actually, you guys hired him during the first Kickstarter in 2012, and he's been a critical part of our team over the years. He is moving on to do his very own project, which we're all really excited about. It's too soon to tell you anything about it yet, but I want you to remember this word bellwether you can be one of the first to know what he's up to by following him on twitter at sam listens and signing up for his tiny letter email newsletter at samgreenspan.org good luck sam we at 99bihq and the listening audience will miss hearing you on our show we are a project of 91.7 kalw in san francisco and produced on radio row in beautiful downtown oakland california When asked about completing his tax form, Albert Einstein famously replied, 
This is a question too difficult for a mathematician. It should be asked of a philosopher. It's a true story. Einstein may very well have felt differently if only he was using FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the ridiculously easy-to-use cloud accounting software designed for self-employed professionals, including math geniuses. They've recently rebuilt their platform from the ground up, just in time to help those who find doing their taxes way too taxing. FreshBooks keeps all of your cash flow details in one place so you know exactly what invoices you sent, who's paid you, and what your income is. You can even set up FreshBooks to import expenses directly from your bank account. So next time you use your debit card for that meal or the tank of gas, it's recorded instantly. On top of turning you into a tax guru, FreshBooks makes invoicing clients so easy, it literally takes like 30 seconds to create and send a really professional looking invoice. Join over 10 million people using FreshBooks and try it absolutely free for 30 days. Go to freshbooks.com slash 99PI and enter 99% Invisible in the How Did You Hear About Us section. 99% Invisible is supported by Article, makers of mid-century modern and Scandinavian furniture. Article furniture is both beautiful and affordable and is shipped direct to you, eliminating the need for a middleman. Article Furniture ships for a flat $49 and offers a 30-day, no-questions-asked return guarantee. I ordered the Walnut Senno sideboard for us to put our awards on in the office. It was tough to choose, and it was very tough to get something for the office instead of just keeping something for myself in my house. Visit their website at article.com slash 99PI to get $50 off your first order. We also got a teardrop-shaped coffee table from Article that I love so much, I'm buying another one for the other room in the office. So a few weeks ago, I had a conversation in front of a live audience at Spur in Oakland with my pal Kevin Smokler about his book, Brat Pack America, which is this like 300-page love letter to all the places where your favorite 80s teen movies were set. I really enjoyed the book and our conversation, but after I recorded it, I learned that if you aren't as well-versed in the 80s movie genre as I am, you might get a little lost. And the conversation just worked way better on the website where we could embed all the pictures of the places that we're talking about and the trailers from the movie along with the audio of the event. It's one of the coolest web features we've ever done, so I hope you check it out. Here's a little clip of our conversation. The locations in Ferris Bueller are all within the downtown loop and Wrigley Field. And I mean, that's one of the things that struck me. I watched Ferris Bueller again uh, a couple nights ago, and um, they they kind of have a lame sense of Chicago. Oh, they <laughs> like sure it, do. It is really like it's really touristy. Like they're not they're not there because they really know Chicago. They're there doing the exact same things that a literal field trip from school would take them to. Yeah, I, I mean they. For kids who live like three train stops away from Chicago, they, yeah. they act like they're there from Cody, Wyoming or something. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, they, they, all they need to do is like get a slice of deep dish pizza like and they've, they've completed their sort of day of touristing around <laughs> Chicago. And, and, and to be fair, and this is only very slightly so, uh, John Hughes was a White Sox, not a Cubs fan. And so he wanted to shoot the Wrigley Field scene at Comiskey Park, which would have at least taken them to, to the, the south, south side, side of Chicago. <laughs> um, but the uh, the Sox were uh, not in town that oh, uh, that weekend. And so they had to film it, film it much to his chagrin at, um, at Wrigley Field. So yeah, it is, it's a really like not adventurous day off. Yeah. And the funny thing is John Hughes himself, even though he was very aware of himself as a dweller in the north suburbs of Chicago, went all the heck all over the place. Like, I spent a lot of time with one of his kids, and John Hughes wrote everything down. And he used to he used to write down, like, all the concerts he would go to and the art exhibits he would go to as a teenager. The guy, the guy mapped all of Chicago on foot. 
And somehow we get this very myopic parochial picture of, of Chicago in, in Ferris. Hear the full interview, trailers, picks, and links to Kevin's book, Brat Pack America, on our website, 99pi.org. We are a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, supported by our listeners, the Knight Foundation, and MailChimp. I think that's enough for this week. All right, take care. Radiotopia from PRX.